Welcome to Talent Management Truths. I'm your host, Lisa Mitchell. I'm a talent management thought partner and results coach, wife, and mom. Talent management leaders are hungry to learn from their peers and want to hear about real-life talent initiatives. This podcast is for and by talent management leaders. My guests and I dig into successes, challenges, and lessons learned from a very practical, not theoretical point of view. You'll discover important insights about how to elevate your confidence and amplify your influence in a role known for being caught in the organizational middle. I'm thrilled to have you listening. So let's get going and hear the truth about talent management today. Are you intrigued by the idea of employee-led development, of truly partnering with employees related to their performance and development? then you're in for a treat with this episode. Learn the role of empathy and design thinking in creating talent systems that put employees in the driver's seat of their own careers and performance. My guest is Pete Needham. He's the VP of People and Culture at Next Dimension, an IT managed services provider. In his role, Pete is deeply involved in all aspects of talent development. And after many years in a very large company, he's enjoying his time in a smaller organization where he has embedded some truly innovative approaches to employee experience. I genuinely enjoyed hearing about Pete's focus on innovation and design thinking. You can really hear his passion for what he does come through in this interview. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Talent Management Truths. I'm happy to be here today with Pete Needham, who is the VP of People and Culture at Next Dimensions. Peter, welcome to the show today. Hello, Lisa, and I'm very, very pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, my pleasure. So I thought, you know, as we get started, as as I typically do, I'd love for you to share with, with me and the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do at Next Dimension. Okay. A little bit of background on Pete Needham. You can probably tell from my accent that I'm English. The first part of my career was spent very happily with Unilever, Unilever Research in the UK. I actually came across to Canada in 2000 Mm -hmm. and uh, worked initially with Unilever Canada and then uh, branched out, wanted to try, you know, having been in big corporate, wanted to try maybe a different flavor of organization. And, you know, the last 10 years or so have been spent very happily in two medium-sized managed services providers within the IT industry. Excellent. Thank you for that. So you've really done some interesting things over the last four years. We were talking in the green room, some really, really innovative, interesting approaches to the type of talent initiatives that everybody can relate to, right? Like how do we evaluate performance? How do we help employees with career pathing, internal mobility? How do we approach the employee experience and make it as 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 best as it can be, given that I always say the employee experience drives the customer experience. So let's maybe dig into some of the examples of things that you've implemented there successfully, because I think there's a lot of food for thought for the listeners. Perhaps a good place to start would be around the abolishment, I love, it sounds so English the way, we abolished annual appraisals. So you (laughs) abolished the old annual appraisal and you moved to something you call monthly development plans. Tell me about that. It's just that, you know, my experience personally over the years and, and many other people's experience of annual appraisals was something that they dreaded and not something that people easily got any value out of. I mean, you know, if you're anything like me, I can hardly remember what I did last week. So trying to put together a meaningful annual appraisal, either of a a subordinate or for myself after 12 months, 
was really, really difficult. And I think most people, you know, really felt that this was something that we, we must, there surely must be a better way. There surely must be a better way. And so what we did at Next Dimension was to introduce these monthly development plans so that we, we're having a continuous conversation or continuous in the sense of at least once a month in where we can sit down with each employee and their line manager and talk in an adult and mature way about feedback, things that are going well, how they're feeling about mm. being part of this entity called Next Dimension. Is it working for them? You know, what would make it better? And then we cover, there are quarterly smart targets, we, there are learning and development plans, there is potential and performance discussions. But it really, we encourage our employees in that monthly development plan meeting, and it's a phrase that I'll use all the time, tell it as it is. Don't tell me what I want to hear, tell it as it is. It's really, really important. So when you institute something like a monthly development plan, Lisa, it doesn't work brilliantly or perfectly right off the bat. because. Mm. The very first time you run it, the employee is sitting in a room with the line manager and the VP of people and culture. And the VP of people and culture is saying, come on, I want you to tell it as it is. Now, how easy is that for an employee the very first time you do it? <laughs> Trust is built over a period of time. Mm. And so it's really, really important that you consistently run the monthly development plans in a, a consistent manner and that the employees therefore become more and more confident and, and feel that they can trust that process. And it does take time, but it's all about personal and professional development. Right. So so there's a lot that you're packing into these monthly development plans. Is there is there like a, a standard consistent structure that's that's utilized, like an agenda to make sure you cover all of those things? Or or is it more one month focuses on X and then month two is Y? Oh, great question. I have what I call the MDP toolbox. So when we're training people in the process who are about to go through it for the first time, we talk about we will dig into the toolbox and bring out the appropriate tools depending on the time of year. Mm. So we have job skills profiles. So if you imagine a job description being a written summary of one or two pages of the, the role and what's expected, a job skills profile is more of a graphical representation of what we expect at, at different levels, bronze, silver, gold and platinum for a given role in the organization. So we will bring those in and out. We have technical skills matrices for our technical staff, because remember, we're in the IT industry. Mm -hmm. We have our core values, the uh, 10 ultimate guide characteristics of professionalism, as we call them. We refer to them. Once every six months, we do th go through a process in which we evaluate the employees in terms of performance and potential in which they evaluate themselves, the line manager evaluates them, and then we have a discussion and we work out, you know, where we think we are based on examples. And it's really, really important that we do that because I think one of the, the tangible benefits of meeting monthly is hopefully the employee, the line manager, always know where they stand. If, if, if we were meeting monthly and an employee feels, I still don't really know where I stand, then the process is failing. And that's all you can really do for people in the sense of being honest about feedback, but also recognizing that through the work we did on design thinking, we, we, we must be aware of the principle of empathy. You know, just because a, an employee has a different evaluation of their performance or their potential doesn't mean they're wrong. It's just mm -hmm. different. And we must try and put ourselves in their shoes and understand the world from their position. I agree. And we're going to dig into that empathy piece some more because there's some really interesting thinking 
here to to dive into. When you say that you look at the performance and potential aspect with the employee and the line manager and yourself, does that feed into any higher level organization wide succession planning strategy or talent review? We've just started to work on that to a, a, a larger extent. Maybe, uh, hopefully, we'll get time to talk about balanced scorecards and strategy at some point. But within the balanced scorecard, we have designed an organizational structure that looks a little bit different to most other organizations because it marries with the balanced scorecard strategic initiatives. In other words, those projects that we've got to achieve over the next 12 months to ensure that we're on track with our strategy. And it's really, really important that we do that. And as part of that process, we have, rather than go with job titles and roles and grades, we've identified what we call strategic tiers. In other words, those people in the organization who are natural born collaborators, who have a high level of emotional intelligence, who can deal with complexity, who have a passion and a hunger. And we've, we've actually done that on a, an, on a scale of tier one to tier six. And when we have a strategic initiative in the balanced scorecard or the strategy planning sessions, we then pick cross-functional teams depending on the level of strategic tier that we feel that initiative needs. Now, that sounds like a lot of buzzwords all mixed together, but <laughs> actually, when, when you know it intimately, it really, really works. Well, it, it, it reminds me a little bit of self-formed work teams, you know, like, mm-hmm. like the, 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 with an agile development, agile leadership, like that concept of what's the composition we need for this particular team in terms of strategic oversight and, you know, doing and tactical thinking and so on as well. So it sounds like you're, you know, you're actively figuring out what's the right blend for any one initiative. Well, you know, I think at the end of the day, Lisa, the way I would describe it is if you look to any ordinary, if I, if that's the right word, organization chart, they're two dimensional. Ours would be more like a cube. Mm, Okay, can you build on that for us? Yeah, because, you know, you've got roles within the organization. You've got the balanced scorecard that has produced a strategy which has strategic initiatives. And then you have the strategic tiers. So you you can't think of it as a two-dimensional organization chart that people would ordinarily recognize. Because, again, we're we're marrying the strategy with with the, 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 the teams then picking cross-functional teams based on the strategic tiers. And again, I apologize because it sounds a bit buzzwordy, but it, it is a very different way of looking at it. But if you think back to what makes a, a strategic tier, somebody can deal with complexity, has a passion and a hunger and a curiosity for knowledge, high emotional intelligence, a born collaborator. Those people are easily identifiable because we meet with them once a month and we have meaningful discussions. Mm-hmm. When we go into those MDPs, it's not a hierarchical relationship. It's not about, you know, Pete, the VP and the line manager and the employee. As soon as that door closes or as soon as the camera's on in the MDP, it does that. In other words, we are partners in this discussion. Yeah. Nobody, nobody pulls rank. Right. So just people can't can't see you. So just just to visualize Pete, he's, he's kind of balancing his hands together, showing it's like we're on equal footing. There's no hierarchy in that. So it's really interesting because, you know, it's a company of 50. So it is a smaller scale company. Mm-hmm. And you've really had the pleasure of building this program where you get to be at the table of 50 monthly meetings, which is you know, mm-hmm. not as you said to me earlier, I mean, certainly it's not scalable if you went beyond your current headcount. And for many companies, they can't even contemplate that. And yet this is so baked into your culture and that employee experience. I think it's worthwhile digging into what 
What could a leader who's listening, who's in a bigger organization, take from this experience? What is the most important takeaway for them to consider, do you think? Well, I mean, I think if I go back to the old style annual appraisals, I think many people felt that, and I certainly I felt in the past, that I, I, was, I was there to listen as opposed to engage. I was being told, these are your targets. I was being mm-hmm. told, this is how you've done. I was told, here are your areas for improvement. I was told, here are your strengths. Nobody actually turned around and ever said, and is that what you think? And I think that's the golden part. How do you build trust with employees? How do you get away from us and them, management and the troops, this team or that team, this discipline or that discipline? And it's through those honest conversations. And you really do have to be honest, you know, where, where mistakes have been made, you can celebrate them because the greatest learning comes from failure. It's true. And if you, if you can give people that reassurance. One of the things I've actually said in an MDP on a couple of occasions, somebody said, Pete, uh, before you say a word, I've made a horrible mistake. This is what happened. This is what I did. I've realized now it, you know, it wasn't the right thing to do. So my first question is, did anybody die? No. Okay. Is it the end of civilization as we know it? No. Is the company likely to go under as a result of what you did yesterday or this afternoon, whenever it was? Well, no. Okay. What have you learned as a result of that happening? Well, of course, da, 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 da. if they can articulate to me in the line manager, this is what I learned. The failure, the mistake is the greatest blessing in the world. I, I, I hear you. And, and it's, such a, it's such a relief, isn't it? When you, when you lean into that, when you really think about, okay, you know, we don't need to be scared of making mistakes, of failing, because that's actually where the, the greatest growth comes from. Yeah. I say all yeah. the time, only people who do nothing never make mistakes. I know I do. Right. Yeah. I love it. I love it. No, it's such an important philosophy and it's not widely embraced. I mean, in corporate culture for, for decades and it, and it persists, there is this, this thinking that people have to get it right, right off the top. And, and, you know, we need practice. We need to stumble. We need feedback. We need time for reflection. And it sounds like in your organization, they get you to help facilitate that discovery and that reflection, which is key to learning. Facilitation is a great word. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So with the individual career plan piece, you had told me that you got rid of the, the, the concept of career ladders and you replaced them with something called desired experiences. Could you elaborate for us? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the thing about an individual career path, it's exactly that. We're all at different stages of life. We have different needs, different wants, and they evolve over time. So having career ladders is all well and good, and they have their place in different cultures. But in our culture, we want to personalize that path to the individual. And so we're really, if you got hung up on job titles and said, you know, the career path for you is to be a tier one. And then a couple of years later, you'll be a tier two. And then a couple of years later, you'll be a tier three or whatever the path may be. That's not really addressing the needs of each individual because everybody's different. And it leads to blockages or let's say traffic jams in the whole evolution of moving people upwards and onwards who want to move onwards and upwards. And so as part of that, what we said was, look, you know, there's a book that was written by Reid Hoffman, who used to be, I think, if I'm correct, the CEO of LinkedIn. And it's called The Alliance. So let's work, instead of me saying, you know, you'll be an employee for the next 10 years, or I want your undying support for the next 10 years as a next dimension employee, let's talk about smaller chunks. 
So we let the employee determine the smaller chunks. And what we do is we say, over the next, the employee inserts the time frame. Right. I would like the following experiences. So instead of saying, I want to be a manager or I want to be a director or I want to be this or I want to be that, I would like to learn more about Cisco routing and switching. I would like to learn more about time management. I would like to learn more about the softer skills. I would like to learn more about Veeam. You could, there's so many things, so many experiences that you can give an employee who wants to move onwards and upwards that it's highly motivating. And, and then we don't worry about whether that means a promotion or not. Are we building out your experiences in such a way that you can say, you know what, this is not boring. I'm not just doing the same old thing day in, day out. And, and we're showing a willingness, you know, unless somebody turns around and says to me, well, Pete, I want to be a brain surgeon because <laughs> we're not in that industry. We will try as much as we can to accommodate that wish. But the most important thing is, Lisa, that individual employee must drive the individual career path. And we often describe it like this. It's a route that we map out. They are in the car as the driver. I am in the car as a passenger and so is the line manager and we will help navigate, but it is the individual who must drive the individual career path. And I think that's highly appropriate. You know, mm -hmm. if, if people don't want to take ownership of that, you know, that's a different discussion, but many, many people do. What we also do, Lisa, is we give people the opportunity to opt in or opt out. Now, for example, if you think about a high performance, low potential employee, somebody who might have reached a place in the organization where they are really happy, they're super productive, they're engaged, they're doing what they want to do, but they really don't want, you know, to be a manager or to have people reporting to them. These are the backbone of any organization and they are golden. You, you need people like that, employees like that in any organization. So if they turn around and say, you know, Pete, I'm really happy doing what I do. And so long as, you know, I can maintain my level of enthusiasm and performance, and we talk about that every month, then, you know, is that okay? And the answer is yes, of course it is. Right, right. Yeah. And it's interesting because I was meeting with a former colleague the other day, wanted to pick my brain around succession planning. And because I've done substantial amount of work in that area. <laughs> And, you know, he was he was saying it's it's fascinating because there's often the the sort of steady eddies, those people that are the backbone that keep the lights on and so on. And leaders often are are banking on them moving up or pretend, potentially even in some cases being their successor and not contemplating really what's the potential there and what's the aspiration for that person. Mm -hmm. Do they aspire for a change or not? Because if they don't, then there's no point pushing them to focus on upskilling, you know, preparing for the next level, for instance, and for you to to put all your hopes there in that basket. But they are equally as important when it comes to employee they, experience. Yes, yes. And so it's not about ignoring them or putting all of your energy on those high flyers or the stragglers, right? It, it's it's ensuring that those those folks, the backbone, are getting the attention that they deserve. I mm -hmm. completely agree. Yeah, very important. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about, you know, you, you talked about empathy earlier. You touched on it. And I think it would be great to dig into that because you did something around this, a whole, what did you call it? Emp empathy interviews. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you could tell us exactly what that did for the organization and how it, it, it was embedded into your programs. Yeah, for sure. As an organization, we decided to go down the path of using design thinking methodology with our employee experience team about 18 months ago. 
There are five stages to design thinking. The first stage is empathy, really getting to know your target audience. And out of that, you will derive personas for your organization. In other words, characteristics that a number of employees could see themselves as uh, relating to, to put it very simply. The second stage of design thinking is defining the problems that the target audience would like solved. And then you ideate at stage three, which is a form of brainstorming. You prototype and you test. Design thinking is used extensively in user experience, designing new software, new products, and the customer experience. And more and more companies are now seeing the value of it in terms of marrying design thinking with the employee experience. So to answer your question, out of when the employee, uh, when the employee experience team were trained and ready to go, they actually conducted interviews across the organization and, and generated a vast wealth of information about the needs and wants of our employees in different locations, at different stages of their lives. We created three personas called Julie, James, and Elliot. And every single one of our staff can relate to one of those personas because we tested it through pull surveys and iteration, which is a key part of design thinking. And we've used that information to generate a new set of core values for the organization that were written from the bottom up, not the top down. We call it the uh, Next Dimension Ultimate Guide to Professionalism. It contains 10 characteristics that the employees told us they felt were important in terms of the organization being professional. And that was one of the key themes that came out of the empathy interviews. And out of that, we then started to focus in on one of those characteristics, accountability, breaking down the barriers between teams, collaborating, and ultimately it led us to our monthly meeting, which we now call the Tribal Council, in which people are rewarded for being nominated by their peers, not by anyone else, but by their peers, for displaying those characteristics, the core values, the characteristics of professionalism. So it's been a journey that at the very start, and I think you could say this of any design thinking project, we had no idea where it was going to take us, Lisa. We had absolutely no idea. It turns out that you know, we now have tribal councils. We have tribal council reward points for people who display the core values as nominated by their fellow employees. It's a great way of working, but why do we call it a tribal council? Because a tribe is one body of people who share the same values, the same culture, and you know live and work in the same place. I mean, that's the definition of a tribe. And so we've shamelessly borrowed from the Survivor TV program. And that's how we run our tribal councils. That's the once, you know, once a month people would call them a town hall or a business update. We call it a tribal council. Right. And just so that people listening aren't thinking you're voting people off the island, it's not about that at all. What's the (laughs) ultimate outcome of your tribal council? No, it's the reverse. It's a democratic process, but the person who receives the most nominations in a given month from their peers is the employee of the month. And then, you know, for some people, they would say, oh, you know, employee of the month, that's a bit old fashioned. I still believe in it because of the link between the voting, the nominations, the core values. And what it's done, Lisa, it's kept the core values top of mind every single month for every single employee. And if you get more than two nominations for employee of the month as part of the MDP process, that's where we solicit the nominations. You get 25 tribal council reward points, which are worth $25. So by the time you accumulate enough of these over a few months, you can cash those in for gift cards worth $125 or $250, 
or you can take extra days vacation. So we now have a reward system that relates directly to the core values and being nominated for manifesting those behaviors. Excellent. So tell us a little bit to connect this. So you're gathering nominations for you know the, the employee of the month piece that, that's awarded in the Tribal Council. You're gathering the nominations through the monthly development plan meetings. So what does that conversation sound like? Let us in, let us listen. What, yeah, what, what, how do you gather that? So it's great because at the beginning of every MDP, this is my first question, and it goes something like this. X, is there anybody that you would like to nominate this month as employee of the month against one or more of the 10 characteristics of professionalism as written and circulated in the ND professional guide and ultimate guide? And then they can't just say, yes, I'd like to nominate Lisa against dedication, accountability and integrity. I have to know why. So tell me why you're nominating against those three characteristics. Another aside, of course, is that it enables us as an organization to measure which of the 10 characteristics are really gelling with the employees this month. And it changes from month to month. So it's really powerful information at our fingertips now. So last month, the most popular characteristic of professionalism was reliability. This Ah. month, it looks like it's going to be expertise. And we can track that now as an organization. And then the key, of course, is then to feed back to the employee who got nominated. Hey, you picked up a nomination today for expertise for doing this. So there has to be a feedback loop. And in a sense, I'm kind of like the hub because I sit in on the MDPs and relay the information. And then at the tribal council, I reveal who's the employee of the month. Right. Interesting. So so with these, so you've just given us a little bit of a, a window into to how that happens. And thank you for that. And you also shared what some of those 10 characteristics of professionalism are. So I heard accountability, integrity, reliability, expertise as a few examples. So, you know, we are meaning making machines, the complex humans that we are. So how did you go about getting people on the same page around what those things mean? Are there definitions attached or how did you go about that? Yes, there are. And, and the way that we did it was, uh, and I'm just actually reaching out to my guide now, this is in front of me. The feedback from the empathy interviews were that when it became clear that professionalism was the overriding theme that the employee base was most keen that we look at and examine, our marketing manager, Brandy, actually said, you know, I think we should do this a little bit differently. And, and here's what we should do. Because these 10 characteristics are all behavioral and all based around emotional intelligence. Let's give the employees some examples of how to think this way, how to act this way, how to react this way, and what we shouldn't do. Mm. And we've got multiple examples against every one of those 10 characteristics. So the ultimate guide to professionalism, although some of the headings, you know, we could easily have taken off the internet just by doing some simple research, the actual meat to the bones was written by the employee experience team. And that's what I mean when I say it was done bottom up, not top down. And we validated it. So the way we validated it was we put the the guide to professionalism in every single employee's employee profile in our HRIS system, which they all have access to ask them to read it, and then add them, had them vote on it. Do you recognize this as something that you can relate to? So there were a number of pulse surveys in which we were constantly checking, did we get the personas right? Did we get the ultimate guide definitions right? Are these the 10 characteristics that mean the most to you? Then we started to pick on well, which would be the most important 
characteristic for us to explore as an, an employee experience team first. Back came the answer accountability. And this is amazing stuff. You know, I mean, I couldn't dream this up. When, you know, to think that to our tribe, our employees really felt that accountability was something really important to them. It's normally something that you might think managers and management teams would think about. But this was coming back to us from from our employee base. And it was very, very clear when we carried out our pool surveys that this was something that they would pursue. Right. Yeah. And it's so, so such a beautiful example of when you when you when people feel heard. Right there is buy-in when they are involved in the things that impact them. It's a much, much smoother sailing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, right now, I'll give you another example of a pool survey. We, we rearranged our office furniture in our Windsor head office to accommodate the needs of COVID, the pandemic and everything. So this week, when the, the government of Ontario lifted one or two of the restrictions like masks and social distancing, etc., what we could have done was just say, oh, we're going to rearrange the office again and you can sit there and you can sit there or come up with some hybrid model. But what employee experience has told us is that the best thing to do is to give the employees a couple of options and have them vote through a pulse survey. So the Windsor head office are currently literally, as we speak, voting on the office layout that they would like now that the COVID restrictions are being lifted. And that is the most powerful thing you can ever do. Rather than impose some hybrid model or, you know, we now have rotating desks and you have to book a desk or something like that. Let's ask the employees what really matters to them. And then let's show them that we heard them. Yeah, it's so critical. And, and you know, I see a lot of organizations grappling with this right now because they're trying to figure out how to manage the return to office or the hybrid transition, whatever you want to call it, right? How did you actually, how did you manage that piece with the return to office where people get to choose when they're in and when they're at home or how's that working for your organization? We have one team in particular that we feel we wanted to be together in the office. It's our service desk. It's it's the heart and soul of our organization. And so right through the pandemic, actually, as an essential service provider, which we regard ourselves as, we had that team in the office. I think going forwards, what the employee experience has told us is there has to be some flexibility and a recognition that individual needs and wants are literally that, individual personal choices. I laugh sometimes and uh, smile to myself when I hear organizations say, we're all going back into the office as soon as it's safe, or we're never going back into the office again. You know, From now on, everybody's remote. Well, that doesn't accommodate the needs and wants of every single employee. And I truly believe that people can still be productive if you give them the environment in which they feel most comfortable. And for some people, that will be in the office. And other people, it will be working remote or to be given the flexibility to maybe work remote a couple of days a week. But you can't really broad brush this. I mean, I think that's what the pandemic's really taught us. It's really about individual preferences and needs. And, and, and if we get away from that, I think we haven't learned the lessons of the last two years. I agree. It's interesting, right? It's been a difficult phase and one where there was a lot of building the plane while we flew it, you know, through throughout and 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 yet, you know, and and some pain. We're coming out the other side and there's been some important learnings, even if it was difficult to get to that I think are going to help in terms of how organizations are responding, how they're listening 
Yes. Right. And really tuning into what employees want. You know, something that you you mentioned earlier before we started recording to you when we were talking about the concept of empathy and the empathy interviews and so on. Such a key theme in the work I do as a as a coach and, and working with talent leaders myself. You mentioned listening to understand, not to judge. And this is a core part when when I facilitate workshops, for instance, around communication or having the the difficult conversation, that is a key piece that comes into play. Three levels of listening based on Marianne Williamson's work. So tell me a little bit about how it plays out at Next Dimension. This this how do you how do you help leaders and employees really listen to understand and not to judge? Well, it's not easy. But I I think one of the things that you have to recognize right off the bat is that empathy, this this ability to listen, to understand, but not to judge, is at the heart of everything. I mean, if you talk about diversity, equity, and, and inclusion, you can't possibly have inclusion without empathy. And it's really, really difficult as for individuals. I, I think it's something that you really have to focus and, and be very self-aware. The ego can be your worst enemy. And the ego is the start of thinking. So as humans, I think it's almost wired into us People will say something and we'll immediately go, well, I don't like that Mm. or I don't agree with that. But that's the judgment coming in. So you can imagine how difficult it is to stop yourself from doing that. But what you can do in empathy interviews as a first step is to acknowledge what's being said by probing questions, by nodding, by acknowledging, by showing interest. You still might be thinking in the back of your mind, I'm not sure I totally agree with this, but tell me more. It's the it's choosing to be curious, right? Yeah. It's it's moving from learner from judger mindset into learner mindset, isn't it? It's yeah. it's it's that, oh, I, I, I don't quite understand where Pete's coming from, but you know, I really want to understand. Yes. You know, I, I want to. So that changes the kinds of questions, the inquiries that you make and moves the conversation forward versus getting stuck at an impasse because you're rolling your eyes internally. It's fascinating. Well, you know what design thinking teaches us is to fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Mm. So the more information you can gather about whatever's you know not working for the employee is really, really important. And that ego comes in at every stage of design thinking because when you're prototyping and testing, a trap that it's easy to fall into is to try and sell the solution to the target audience. But you shouldn't do that. You can present a solution but you must be prepared for them to go, no, that's not what we want and be okay with that. Right, right. So it's offering it with no attachment. I also like the idea of offering options, right? So it's it's not like, and, and not being married to any of them. Like here's right. what I, based on what I've heard and here's you know, where I'm thinking it's going. Yeah, I think that's something that, that a lot of HR talent leaders, because they're of service, they tend to be people that really want to be of service, want to help solve problems, you know, want to add value so badly sometimes can err on the side of advice giving versus really not because we're bad people, but, you know, versus really, truly listening to understand and to dig and to go a little bit further to uncover before saying, you know, based on this, I'm thinking here, few ideas, you know, in the direction we could go solution wise, but Mm -hmm. taking your time. I love that. Fall in love with the problem, not the solution. That's Mm -hmm. brilliant. Well, so we are at the end of, of our time together. So I wanted to ask you one more question. Doesn't it go fast? It's wild. It does. (laughs) It does. It's like, so one last question before we wrap Pete, which is you were talking so eloquently earlier about how learning so often is rooted in failure. So whether it's a failure story or not, what would you say is your biggest learning over your career in in our discipline? It's okay to trust people. 
Oh, yes. You know, I mean, you, you can have two perspectives. I can do this myself because I know I can do it or I can trust this person to do it. And it's not naivety, but I think out of respect and out of consideration and, and, and a little bit of humility, it's okay to trust people. They might not do it exactly the same way as we would. Maybe I could have done it faster. <laughs> but if they're doing their best and they're learning and developing and they're having fun, let's trust them. Yeah. It's okay to trust people. Thank you very much. I think that's wise, wise words for us today. And thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, thank you for having me, Lisa. I really appreciate it. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your colleagues. Better yet, head over to iTunes and let us know. When you subscribe and leave me a five-star review, not only do I glow from within, but more people will learn about the show and why they should listen. Until next time, keep telling the talent management truth.